Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. This is a replay of my episode with the fantastic Oliver Berkman. It was recorded in 2021, around the time his book 4,000 Weeks had just come out. He is an award-winning writer for The Guardian. He writes a popular weekly column called This Column Will Change Your Life. And in this episode, we talk about his new book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. It's so great. I recommended this book to everyone when I got a proof copy before it came out, and I'm so glad that it got all the attention it deserves. It's a truly uplifting, engrossing, and deeply realistic look at productivity culture and time management. And it's looking at it through a new lens, which is rejecting society's obsession with getting everything done, our obsession with a million to-do lists, and really unpicks why our obsession with productivity is ruining our lives, essentially. So I hope you enjoyed this book. It's one of my favourite non-fiction books of the year, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. The day has arrived that I have Oliver Berkman on the podcast. I really loved your book so much, and you know this because I keep telling everyone to buy it, but um, I actually <laughs> bought the US copy as well because I wanted the diff- the cover. I like the US Amazing. cover. Brilliant. Got Love both it. copies on my bookshelf. And um, yeah, I wanted to kick off really with with how you did come to this realization on the 4,000 weeks because you talk about it in the book, but it's funny. I started the book with a bit of an existential meltdown and then I ended the book with like this meditative relaxation. Mm -hmm. And so could you talk us through kind of that, that timeframe and what it means to you and to us? Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad that was your sort of journey through the (laughs) ideas because it was mine as well. And I think this, you know, this idea of 4,000 weeks, which is very approximately the average human lifespan in the West expressed in terms of weeks. You know, if you live to be 80, you'll get about 100 more than, than 4,000. But broadly speaking, 4,000 weeks is a, is, a, is a human life on average. I mean, I did want it to be like arresting and to grab people's attention. I've been a little bit worried that it might grab people's attention and then horrify them <laughs> so much that they definitely don't want to read a book that has that title. Um, luckily, that hasn't seemed to be the case. It's just this notion that there is this kind of hard limit somewhere uh, to the amount of time we get. We don't know what it is. And that I guess the book's argument at the most abstract level is that all sorts of the ways that we upset ourselves and distress ourselves with regard to time, you know, um, in terms of anxiety about being too busy and procrastination and trying to become more and more efficient and feeling overwhelmed and all the rest of it, on some level comes from not fully understanding the, the ramifications of the fact that we are finite in this way. I sometimes think it's kind of helpful to start by saying what it's not about. And what it is not about is saying you only have 4,000 weeks. Therefore, you have to have this kind of white knuckle, carpe diem, actually quite stressful approach to life where you're desperately trying to do incredibly extraordinary or meaningful things with every moment or, you know, extreme sports and I don't know, mountain climbing and base jumping, you know, because otherwise you're not really sucking the marrow out of life. That's definitely where people's minds go first. But what I really took from going on this exploration myself was that the closer you get to sort of seeing the implications of this, the more relaxing and relieving and empowering, but sort of liberating it is rather than stressful or 
Absolutely. And that's why I think the book does grab your attention. The title does get you thinking. But as you say, it's so nuanced and it it really looks at time in so many different ways. And we'll get onto that in a minute because it really opened my mind to just the fact that we've kind of made it up what it means in society anyway. (laughs) Um, But can we talk a little bit first about why you are such the perfect person to write this book? I mean, you have written a column in The Guardian that a lot of people have known and loved for years and I guess you were almost like the productivity guru kind of, I don't know if you like that title, but you were someone who would unpick the topic in detail. And it was like, if even you cannot make productivity kind of work and what it's meant to do, then there's a problem. I think this is true in lots of areas of life. And this is just one of mine, that it's by pursuing things, sort of exhausting certain avenues to their limits that you really learn, you know, certainly some things that are good about them, but also you understand their limits, right? So if you're, if you spend like 10 years writing a column for The Guardian where you're trying to, more than 10 years, where you're trying to test out all these things and on some level doing it because you do believe on a personal level that that you're going to get to this point where you finally discover the way to have everything work and be super optimized and never have to say no to things and feel confident about your job and your life going forward and be in this kind of in control of time state, which is what I was chasing, I think, uh, through a lot of that time. If you um, if you only sort of ever tried out a couple of those techniques, you might still think that you just hadn't found the right one. If you test out about fifty and learn from them, you begin, it begins to dawn on you eventually that maybe <laughs> it's not a question of finding the uh, specific technique, and that maybe it's more to do with looking at the psychology that's sort of driving you in that direction. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I think definitely I I have been in that place that I think many people are of, of thinking that there's some situation of having life really sorted out when it comes to time, that we're not quite at yet, but with the right techniques and a bit more self-discipline than you've ever shown ever, but you'll go apparently tomorrow, you're going to wake up with more self-discipline. Uh, this could bring you to this position of having life in full working order. And I think that's really what I'm taking aim at, I guess, is is what that really means. And the fact that it sort of isn't achievable on those terms. That's really interesting because I guess the reason I loved it so much was also because you are an expert in this area. You have tried out absolutely everything, but yet you were almost well, I think you say in the book that you were writing it for yourself. You have been in the inbox zero trenches of endless to-do lists as well. It's not like you weren't coming at it from, I've got this all sorted. Here's, here's I'm going to tell you what to do. It was more, I actually need to sort this out <laughs> and write a book about what the problem is. No, totally. I mean, firstly, I think, uh, and I suspect you would agree with this, that like any book that exists in this broad genre of advice or um trying to sort of provide some insights. The authors don't always admit that they're writing it because they've struggled with this thing themselves, but like they always are ultimately writing about what they struggle with. It's not interesting, I think, to someone as an author to write about something that they haven't had any problems with. But yeah, as you say, more than that, it's not just that I had some problems with it and now I'm, uh, you know, graciously letting all the rest of you know the truth that I came up with. It's that the act of writing the book was like to try to figure out what I what I thought about this and, and what was true about it. And even that I had to kind of change my personality, at least somewhat, to get the book written, right? You sort of, you pursue where you're going in terms of how are the healthiest ways to relate to time. 
seeing that I sort of wasn't doing that enough in my own life, I was sort of obliged to change a bit just in order to be able to authentically finish writing the the book. Otherwise, I wouldn't know how to finish it and I would just be a fraud. So it was actually kind of like the actual writing of the book is sort of self-therapy as well, not just that it recounts uh, a history of self-therapy. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it's interesting that it's actually genuinely helped you because it's it's helped a lot of people. I posted about it the other day, actually, about how I was interviewing you. And the responses I got, it's not just, oh, I really enjoyed that book. It was, this book has actually tangibly changed the day-to-day of my life. And I think that's a huge thing to have done. I mean, I'm very grateful for a lot of the um, the blog posts you've done in the past as, as well around chunking your time, which we'll get to actually in, in a minute. But could we talk about in the book how all this research and amazing, incredible, rich information you give us on time as a commodity that we've almost, we've put a meaning on it that actually wasn't there like years and years and hundreds and thousands of years ago. We really do think of it as like time is money, time is precious. What made you want to kind of go back to the very, very beginning with what time even means? Well, it was sort of just where everything led. I sort of couldn't avoid it. Again, it's very tempting to think that what's wrong with time is that you're not managing it in exactly the right way uh, or you're not bringing enough self-discipline to your managing of it. But it quickly becomes clear when you look into this that there's something kind of weird about the idea of managing it in the first place. So then you get a lot of people who've made this observation in the past, right, that you can't really manage time. You can only manage your energy. You can't, time just sort of, is there and it unfolds and you get 24 hours a day and everyone gets the same 24 hours. So managing it is sort of a bit strange. But then I sort of wanted to go even deeper than that because it's, it, it became clear that the very idea that time is something separate from you, like it's a thing. That, that's the best I could come up with in the book really was to use italics and say like the idea that time is a thing. That's not something that I think people at all points in history and all cultures, maybe not even every single culture today would would recognize as obviously true. The most basic thing about this outlook is that we think about time as something that we have to keep up with or use as a resource. There's a relationship, there's you and there's time. And maybe you're wasting it, or maybe you're really, really great at like extracting the most value from it, or maybe you feel like it hounds you, it's like an enemy. But in all those cases, it's just like there's you and then there's time. And I think that the example I give in the book, I think like an early medieval English peasant would not have been able to understand the beginnings of this, right? It was just that time unfolded. Time was the medium that life unfolded in. And anthropologists call this task orientation, which I think is a useful phrase, right? It's this idea that the rhythms of life just unfold from the tasks of life. It's not like you're measuring them against a calendar or a schedule or imagining a clock face in your head or anything like that. It's just they are what dictate the rhythm of your days. So, Again, just examples from the book. If you run a little dairy farm, the cows just need milking when they need milking. And if you grow crops, the crops just need harvesting when they need harvesting. You can't impose a schedule on that except in a very, very minor way. And there's lots of limitations to this way of life because I think it makes sort of mass industrial scale society. You can't do it without coordinating people's time using schedules and timetables. But there is, and it would have been, I think, a great, much greater degree of sort of psychological peace because as soon as you set up this separation between time and you and feel this pressure to use it well and 
capitalism tries to maximize profits from it and all of that, you're sort of in a permanent anxiety situation because you're trying to do something to time that you can't quite ever really successfully do because it isn't a thing. <laughs> so yeah, it's just sort of, it's a, it's a set of concepts that help us do a lot of things, but also give rise to all these stresses and sense that we're not quite, haven't quite got things together and that we need to come up with some new system before we can really feel like our lives are in order and all the rest of it. Absolutely. It, it was almost like, you know, when I was thinking of my own relationship with time, as everyone's is probably, it's like, like you say, it's like this tackling of it or this management of it or this almost, almost like trying to capture it, like put it in a bag and save yeah. it or, and it's really anxiety inducing and it, it does make you miserable. And, and, and kind of going on to one of the other downsides of living in that state, I thought it was really interesting that the theme of loneliness came up a lot in your book, which I didn't really expect it to in a way when we talk about productivity and our obsession with time. Of course, it makes us lonelier because we're sort of, we're so in our heads about what we're doing with our time. You use an example in the book, actually, of Mark Manson, the the writer who kind of would use his time amazingly as a digital nomad and see the world and do all these amazing things. But he kind of says, well, he was on his own. So that's not even the answer either. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, I should say like, that's an insight he came to. I'm not sort yeah, of yeah. lecturing him. He's, he's, he's written brilliantly on, on, on sort of seeing the truth of this. If you are trying to get control of your life in that way, which is really sort of trying to get control of your reality, by definition, among the things that you're going to sort of try to get rid of are the claims of other people on your time. And this is kind of a fraught issue because obviously there are people in our lives who make kind of unreasonable claims and you have to be able to say no and establish boundaries and all the rest of it. But if you really go for that kind of, my dream is to have total control over my time, total sovereignty to do exactly what I want when I want. And anything that it challenges that is something ultimately that's kind of bad. And in an ideal world, I get rid of it. Then you can't participate in the rhythms of life and community that actually, even though we don't like to admit it, keep us sane in all sorts of ways. And the digital nomad thing is just a very stark example because you sort of say, well, I can do whatever I want. I can go and work from any beach or mountain whenever I like. And it's true, but then you're just sort of outside of society in some fundamental way. And, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to coordinate to go and have a drink with a friend or join, you're not gonna be able to join a society that meets every Wednesday night or something like that. So yeah, I think there's something inherently individualistic and ultimately sort of solitary about the kind of control that traditional that sort of productivity culture wants us to try to achieve. Yeah, because letting go of that angsty, obsessed with getting the to-do list done and, and staying up all night, finishing something that tomorrow will be on repeat happen again. That's what I really got from your book is like, do you know what? If I haven't finished everything I need to do, I'll do it tomorrow. And the to-do list can just carry on the next day because life is just a continuum of days and time. And mm -hmm. it's made me kind of a better friend, I think. It's made me this is literally in the time since I read your book. Obviously, it's the best possible kind of response, <laughs> so I love it. No, yeah. But I do have more time to give to other people now because I've really let go of this sort of to-do list needs to be done today kind of mentality. And I just think that's a really interesting link that you've made there that we really need to let some of this stuff go. <laughs> well, for me, it's always, I mean, I always find this a little hard to convey, but for me, it's the thing you're trying to do when you're trying to sort of get on top of it or get your arms around it all feel like the absolute sort of master of your <laughs> life time-wise it is impossible like it's impossible in the same way that making two plus two add up to five is impossible you know it's like it's there are various reasons that i go into in the book you know 
we have these minds that are capable of coming up with a thousand things we'd like to do or feeling a thousand obligations for things we'd like to do. But we are very, very finite. So there's no reason to believe that the number of things you feel you need to do is going to fit inside the time and energy that you have in order to do them. And then also all these weird phenomena whereby, you know, if you get really good at answering email, it generates more email. And so it's a sort of never ending quest. To me, the huge relief comes from seeing that like the thing you're trying to do there is just not possible. It's, it's It's a level of domination over time that humans just sort of don't get to have. And that's really powerful for anybody. And I'm definitely one of them who sort of has their, has had their sense of self-worth tied up in their productivity and output, because then you're like, oh, hang on. I was beating myself up for not being able to do something that no human being can do. That, there's something so obviously wrong about that, that you do actually sort of drop the, the self-beating up a bit. So it's not so much to do with like doing less, I think, but just seeing more consciously that how things actually just are for all of us when it comes to limitation. And then you're like, oh, such a breath of fresh air or an opportunity to exhale or whatever, because then you can be like, well, no wonder I never seemed to manage to achieve this goal. It's not a goal that people can achieve. When I read the book, I did actually have a quite that physical feeling of, of relaxation. I j- did have that breathing out moment of, oh, yes, thank you for kind of, um, you know, just taking the weight off a bit. I was wondering, this is like a, on the flip side of this conversation, I guess, for someone else, could they interpret it as, well, the goalposts are always moving. I'm never going to be satisfied. I'm never going to be, you know, that arrival fallacy thing of I'm never going to get to the end of whatever this thing is that I'm looking for. Could someone look at that as a bit of a glass half empty, like negative outlook? Because I don't see it like that at all. (laughs) It's almost like, well, if you can't do all of this, then like, what's the point in doing anything? There's a sort of, I I don't know if that's what you're getting at, sort of nihilistic kind of conclusion. And I feel like I've always been sort of towing this, walking this tightrope, I don't know, but whatever, in the writing that I do, because I wrote another book about how being open to negative thoughts and negative feelings instead of focusing relentlessly on positive thinking is a, is a good thing. And, you know, that was always open to the interpretation, like, are you saying we should go around being really depressed and gloomy? And like, what's the point in that? And I think, I mean, everything I'm drawn to in this whole area has this quality of like constructive pessimism or something. It is pessimistic in a way. Once you've dropped certain illusions, which is a depressing experience to go through in some sense or an uncomfortable experience anyway, that's when you get to do the cool, meaningful things with your life. So the, the words that I'm always sort of grasping after to describe this outlook are things like, like, like it's bracing. You know what I mean? This, this, I, so bracing is like, Bracing weather is not, it's not quite, it's not lovely weather. It's not like (laughs) being lying on a beach in the sun, but it energizes you through your confrontation with it somehow. Or it's like, you know, having a cold shower to give another cliched comparison. You know, it's like, it's uncomfortable, but you are clearer about things and you're sort of freer and more empowered as a, as a result of it. I mean, in a way, it is a glass half empty outlook, right? If, if, if filling the glass to the brim, is for various reasons completely impossible, you know, then it's useful to know that and to go forward with the glass half empty and not to be wasting all your time and energy trying to fill the glass. And maybe that metaphor has to stop being extended there. 
That is such an interesting answer. I'm so glad I asked you that because like you say, it's not really black and white either. It's not like it's depressing or it's positive. It's not, it's not one or the other. It just is. And I think that's what you're doing and why the book has, I think, been so successful is we kind of need this right now, especially like a big dose of reality because it's kind of harmful being fed things that aren't true. And, and this is the truth. You know, we can't do everything. And it's related to that thing that I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, in, in, in sort of the broader world of self-help and personal development about the importance of acceptance and what acceptance does and doesn't mean. And the fact that it doesn't mean agreeing to your situation or resigning yourself to the fact that how things are is how they have to remain. But it does mean accepting that your situation is your situation and that it far from being a sort of act of resignation. That's the first step to making any change, right? So if you're in a sort of terrible, toxic relationship, say, you definitely shouldn't accept it if that means like, just like, this is all I ever get to do or I have to stay. But you better accept that you are in one if you're going to have any chance of doing anything constructive about it. So it's that same move of like, there's never anything ultimately wrong in turning to how reality is. Absolutely. Because the other theme that really came out for me, which is why, again, it's almost like you're just telling us how it is, which I really enjoy, is um, this sort of the accountability bit of um, we have to take, we have to take accountability for our actions. I think, I don't know if it's in the book or one of your blog posts recently, but you sort of say, we actually quite enjoy being distracted. Why don't we just admit that we actually quite like <laughs> being so busy and so stressed, like it's a badge of honor. And um, that was interesting, like that sort of prompt to get the reader to really think about what part they're playing. Yeah, no, I think the distraction, especially with sort of digital distraction, social media and the rest of it, like it's real. Silicon Valley should be much more regulated. I agree with all those political um, critiques of big tech, but then you read people on this and it, and or you talk to them and the implication is that they're sort of sitting doing their writing or some other work and Twitter kind of grabs them unwillingly and, and takes them away from the work that they were enjoying so much. But we all know that's not what happens. You get annoyed or uh, intimidated by or bored by some piece of work that you know you care about in some higher sense and, and you just love the opportunity <laughs> to go and scroll through social media instead. I mean, partly because there are good aspects to social media. I don't want to condemn them completely. But also it's like this stuff that we care about, creative work and the rest of it, that makes us feel uncomfortable because we care about it and because the stakes are high. It feels much more comfortable to put it aside than to than to stick with it. And on that reality bit of kind of looking at our lives and what we can change, what we can't change, one thing that I really needed to hear from you in this book was just that we can't make chaos disappear. We can't make our lives orderly and neat and perfect. It's It sounds obvious, but this control thing again of like wanting every day to be just right. And, you know, I don't have kids, but obviously I know what, it, you know, you were saying earlier, like who knows who might come in the door and people on <laughs> Zoom and meetings and th th life is chaotic. And I feel like the pandemic has really brought that to the surface. Like we're all not lying to each other all the time anymore. And I know you wrote about how we can kind of ring fence a few hours and, and do our work in, in less time and also have the chaos at the same time. Could you talk about that realization you had? That's a really interesting way of framing it because I, I think both these points about accepting chaos and only working for a few hours on deep creative work, they're like, they're both points I've made, but you're connecting them in a way that I hadn't quite done before. And of course, like we are totally now in the realm of 
the things that go right to the heart of my own hangups and issues and blah, 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 right? I mean, it's so strange to me that if you make a schedule for the day or you have a sense of how your rhythms should go for the day, for many of us anyway, disruptions to that are like really unsettling, even if it doesn't lead to any less work or to a less meaningful day. It's just the fact that it didn't stick to those rails that you sort of had in your mind. And I'm definitely someone who, you know, on an ideal day of work would have a fairly clear sense of when in the day I'm going to do different things. And, and I definitely know that weird sense that something's gone wrong just because like reality has carried on unfolding. Uh, <laughs> and guess what? I didn't get to yeah. dictate every little bit of it. It's raining. <laughs> right. Or often in ways that are good, even, you know, could be a really interesting call from someone or a communication about something that I'm really glad to receive. It's, it's really strange how much that the sheer fact of feeling in control is it feels how much that's worth. And yeah, I think part of that point about three or four hours speaks to that. This is just the observation that, you know, if you look back through the routines and rituals of all sorts of famous artists and authors and scientists, lots of other people, um, you find this recurring pattern that people don't really try to do more than about three or four hours of intense, focused, thinking-related work per day on their key projects. Now, it might be that they have a whole retinue of servants in the 19th century so that they can spend the rest of the day hunting or something. Or it may be that we're just talking about how we organize a busy day today, right? So you're going to do maybe do three or four hours of your serious creative stuff, and then you'll still have to do three or four hours of other stuff because that's life. But just by sort of scaling back um, your ambitions in, uh, in terms of time there, I mean, firstly, yeah, you get to place a certain kind of order over a small part of the day that's much more likely that you're going to get your way. Uh, and it's sort of it, the very act of making that plan is to sort of also accept that chaos is going to be happening and you're not going to try to control the time outside those, those boundaries. Um, and then there's also this very sort of thing that I've really benefited from as a writer, as I've learned it sort of comes partly from this psychologist, Robert Boyce, who I've written about a few times that if you keep the thing you care about in your work, in my case, you know, it might be writing a book, say, if you keep it quite modest as a, as a part of your daily and weekly schedule, it's far easier to come back to it again and again and again. It's far more appealing and appetizing as a prospect to come and do it because you haven't built it up into this thing that sort of dominates everything and is ruining your ability to get and do anything else in your life or um, exhausting you. And right up to like, you know, if you do three hours and you're in the, on a roll when three hours comes, I still th I think you should like get up and stop and make yourself stop at that point. Because then you're sort of itching to get back into it the next day, which is the ideal condition. Um, and if you really pursue that mo that momentum until it runs out at like, you know, three hours later, then you're really building this association in your mind, I think, between the work that you care about and being exhausted and out of ideas, which is a, a bad association. Yeah. To, no, it's so, so helpful, really practical and helpful. And I've now realized that, you know, I just need to do a little bit of that thing, whatever that might be. And for me, I suppose it is probably writing in the morning or kind of near the beginning of the day so that I don't act like I'm being robbed all the time because that's not a very nice way to live. Like I don't want to get to the end of the day and be like, well, no one allowed me to do this thing for me. It's like, well, just right. do some of it then. 
earlier in the day. Um, So that's really, really helped. Um, But obviously the book's been out for a bit now and it's been a New York Times bestseller, Sunday Times bestseller. I feel like so many people obviously have read it now and it feels like it's just come out quite recently. But have you got a sense of what part of it has really resonated or any sort of just like themes that you feel like people are really latching onto and really, really needing right now? Huh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I'm getting some amazing feedback, absolutely. And it's it's mainly, I, I guess it's mainly of the kind where I have the sense that people are sharing in this perspective shift that I was hoping to communicate and had experienced myself. So that's great. You know, just this general sense of relief at seeing that something you're trying to do is impossible and that it sort of is permission and empowerment to do something meaningful and possible instead. I guess a lot of that we haven't spoken about, but that does come up a bit in those reactions is this whole idea of living in the moment and what that and what that means. And I so I sort of write there's an extended bit in the book about how one of the effects of this fixation on using time well is this really ironic thing where you become totally focused on the future instead of the present because the measure of whether you're using an hour well is whether or not it builds up to some goal that you're trying to accomplish. And this seems to be sort of built into the concept of a use relationship. I think there's, there's sort of mm-hmm. probably very deep philosophy here that is almost beyond me. But, but like the idea that if you're going to use time well, you're automatically treating it as a means. So you're focusing on the end to which it is a means. And if you go too far in that direction, we all have to do it to some extent. Otherwise, we never get anything done, you know, <laughs> but, but. If you go too far in that direction, all of life becomes measured by some future point at which it's all going to cash out and you're going to be like, okay, this was worth it. I'm now living a valuable, meaningful life. And of course, that never comes because the future is always in the future. Um, So by sort of recognizing how much you're doing that, I think, and I've found, you do get to drop back into present in quite a profound way and a way that is ultimately more effective i think and i write about this too than this kind of really self-conscious like i'm going to be present in the moment uh thing that is quite culturally Mm -hmm. reinforced um the moment the idea that you can just sort of by sheer effort of will walk out into the backyard and like be present with your experiences. Just pre- it, press it, a it, button. It, it, right. It yeah. makes it, it's actually really hard. And all you do is you spend your whole time like thinking, am I being present enough? Am I being present enough? Which is no, which is no way uh, to be present. It's more just about seeing that like we always are inevitably only present and that um, all the worries and anxieties that cycle around in your head about work, they're all happening in the present too. Um all your thoughts about the future are arising in the present. You know, it's just like, you're just are here. So again, it's that thing of like, I'm not saying change your life to be like this. I'm just saying like, see that this is what all our lives are like uh, inescapably. And there's something quite relaxing in in that seeing. That's why I love this book so much though. It's because you've kind of written this like, under the guise of like a businessy book when really it's actually like quite a spiritual book and those That's two things my life really yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah me too in a way it's kind of a trojan <laughs> right. horse but i um i thought that was really interesting and it made me think actually when i was reading it i know and i've always thought this ever since i was really young that i never understood retirement as a concept like i understand that we need money to to save mm. for our future absolutely but this mentality of i'll do it i'll do it later i'll do it then i'll go traveling then i'll stop working then i'll i just it's like why are we putting things to the very end and we might not yeah. even, we might not even get there 
No, absolutely. No, it's true, isn't it? And that's really interesting that you put it like that. Yeah, it's important to save for retirement if you can, because you might not have the capacity to earn money and then you need money. But the idea that what you're doing is saving for the time when life really takes on its meaning is a very strange one. Yeah. yeah. There's there's a question in the book and obviously no spoilers. There's five questions that you really make people like sit and, and reflect on. But one of them is that you ask, what would you do if there was no end result? And I actually sat there for quite a while. Like my brain kind of exploded a little bit because I didn't really, I couldn't really think of anything. And that, I think that's really says it all. <laughs> it's a hard one. And it's not, I, I'm not sure even I have particularly clear answers to it, but it's like, what would you, how would you live differently if you didn't need to like be around for the, for the end result of what you're doing? And I suppose, you know, maybe that phrasing, like what would you do differently is not quite on point. Maybe it's more like, how does it change your experience of life to think this way? Because it could have some very practical implications. You know, it could be that if you're committed to sort of fighting against climate change, say you don't want to make it a, a standard of the value of doing that, that you're going to be around to see the results of your actions. Building a business or an organization, there are all sorts of contexts where, you know, something going on beyond and not you not needing the results to happen in your lifetime will be important. It's already the case that you're not going to be around for the end results of all your actions anyway, right? The ways that you affect other people and how that affects other people in turn, the ways that your creative work resonates, um, all of these things. It's all right to have goals, but it, it's also good to feel yourself to be part of a great chain, right? Sort of influenced by all sorts of people before you and mm-hmm. paying it forward in all sorts of ways. And just to sort of stress less about these moments of truth where you win a prize or get an exam result or, you know, I'm not saying they don't matter at all, but like and just sort of feel yourself more part of a flow, which, yeah, mm-hmm. that's getting very spiritual. No, I, but that, I that I've, to be honest, I don't know if I'm putting words into this but what sprung to mind when you were speaking was just the idea of like climate change for example that we're not going to be around to see whether you know whether we're going to be okay or not the point is kind of do your part without needing a to see a result because someone will benefit from that this is really interesting and because actually it, it connects to part towards the end of the book when i'm talking about when you think about whether what you do with your life has meaning don't use a definition of meaning that like rules out all sorts of stuff that you're doing with your life or or could do with your life. Don't use this kind of like being extraordinary, being famous, being super rich. Fine. I'm not against those goals, but like, and this, uh, and this, this affects sort of climate change activism too, right? I think there are people who think that like, you know, it's a waste of time to help preserve an area of wetlands near your home or something, because what's the point in any of that? If, if we can't change uh, the macro level political things that need to happen. And I just think in all those cases, I want to say it can't be our definition of a meaningful life that sort of make cooking meals to feed a family or doing some creative work that influences a handful of people or, uh, you know, working for a neighborhood organization that makes one street a little more beautiful than otherwise would have been. It can't be the case that those things are all meaningless just because they don't amount to saving the world or being the next uh, Facebook or, you know, whatever is the appropriate thing for the domain you're talking about. That's just, there's something wrong with the definition of meaning there rather than something wrong with Mm. how people are spending their lives. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I could do a whole separate thing at the moment about how we don't value parents in society and mothers 
especially with like what they are bringing to society and how we are putting the pressure on people to work when actually they might just want to be a parent and that doesn't diminish the meaning it's actually incredibly meaningful but anyway that's um just floating around my head at the moment but thank you so so much for your time i knew this would be a really interesting conversation i also i also knew we would scrape the surface because this book (laughs) is just packed full of stuff it's it really is incredible and um everyone listening if you haven't already because i've been telling you all constantly to get one um (laughs) the the link will be in the description so go and get a copy and um i hope you get that relaxing feeling that i had reading it in the garden But thank you so much for doing this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed.